This week we're going to continue our series titled, What We Believe. Hearing these sermons and affirming belief in the doctrines that they cover are going to be one of the qualifications for membership here at Love City Church. I said this last week, I just wanted to say it again. I'm really grateful for how this series has gone because uh, friends of mine in ministry and, and just other people that I've heard talk about it, they really kind of... Um, don't look forward to preaching things like an eight-week series on essential doctrine because it can be perceived that people won't have any hunger for that and they're not going to really care about it. It's like, let's get to something more interesting. And uh, I'm just, I've been really blessed by how this church, this faith community has responded to this, uh, the feedback that I've gotten, not so much, hey, you preached a great sermon because that just makes me nervous anyway and makes me want to point to Jesus when you say that. But um, more just people engaging with it and, and learning and being excited about these essential doctrines of our faith. So I just wanted to pat you on the back a little bit and say, you're probably real Christians. So there you go. Happy about that? Yeah. Good. I am. Uh, tonight, our joyous pursuit of truth leads us to the subject of the church. Um, some of you may have been here for a series we did prior to this series that was uh, several weeks on the church, God's people on mission. And so there may be some uh, recurring themes in tonight's sermon, but we could not preach an eight-week series on doctrine without covering the doctrine of the church because it's that important. Um, the church has always had enemies. But over the last couple decades, uh, she has really come under fire. Criticism can be a good thing for the church or for us as individuals. Um, whether people are trying to be constructive or not, Critique can cause us to assess and potentially change things that we may not have been aware of had somebody not criticized us, right? So it's never fun to get criticized. Can we be honest, right? We always want people to say nice and good things about us. However, if we're mature, we understand that critique and criticism sometimes can be beneficial. Uh, however, some criticism is not helpful, and it's only destructive. And uh, the most dangerous criticism is not from those who oppose Jesus openly, and thus naturally oppose his church. The most dangerous criticism often comes from those who claim to follow Jesus, but have nothing good to say about his church. Now, listen, we're not naive. Uh, we know that much of the bad rap the church has gotten has been deserved. There have been both high and low profile scandals uh, of every sort and kind involving the abuse of sex, money, influence, and all the other things that we preach against in our pulpits every week. Uh, oftentimes our mission has seemed to some to be more about hate than love. And this, all of this together has led us to really be made out to be something that everybody hates, and that's a hypocrite. Or that we are hypocritical. Uh, the thing is, though, how do you respond to that? And, and you don't bite into one bad apple and then go on a mission to cut down the whole tree that that apple came from, and then go on a further mission to cut down every apple tree you can ever find or come across because you're still mad about the bitter taste that one apple gave you. And that's how, that's how some people treat the church. They may have a bad experience, um, which could have to do with the fact that they encountered church people or you know whatever that did them wrong or offended them, or it could just be that they were immature. Either way, oftentimes people then will kind of have a vendetta and want to go and talk bad and smear and wipe out all churches, which doesn't make sense. You eat one bad apple, you don't want to erase apples from the face of the planet, right? That's just, it's a little bit too much <laughs> as far as a response. So um, the church does have flaws because it's made up of people. 
And as we take time tonight to define and describe the church, we're going to see that Jesus considers her worth the trouble, and so should we. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13. Now, the number one definition, if you do an internet search for church, uh, and I say internet search because I doubt many of you have handled a uh, actually paper-bound dictionary probably in the last five years, uh, but if you do an internet search, um, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the number one definition you're going to get for church is a building for public and especially Christian worship. Well, clearly, uh, we can't trust Webster to define this one for us, so we're going to lay a little bit of groundwork tonight on defining the church. Um, the Greek word translated church in the English Bible is ekklesia. And what that means is the called out ones. The church is the people of God, those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. That is the church. So you look at even the original language, how it was used, it was the called out ones. It was a reference to the people, not the service. So it's not an event and it wasn't the place. The word church is about the people. The church is a people. Okay? And that's important because people can be confused about that, right? I've encountered that often. And um, it can be a hard mentality to uproot. And I know that this may be repetitive. Um, and so forgive me if you've already heard it, but on purpose, Natalie and I with our children, when we talk about coming together as the church, we don't say to them that we're going to church. Uh, if you ask my two-and-a-half-year-old Lucy... Uh, what, where we are right now, she'll say the building. And that's intentional because the Bible says if you train up a child in the way they should go, they won't depart from it. And so I don't want Lucy to have to wrestle with this misunderstanding once she's 16, 17, 18, 20 about, well, I go to church. So what is the church? And, and have all this confusion. I want to start right where she's at, training her. And I'm hoping to encourage those of you as well that are parents or aspire to be parents it matters. You know, it's not just language, and, and we're not just splitting hairs. Um, you can't go to church if it's a people. And, it, and this service is not, it's not church. We, God's people, are the church. Okay? And that's important. So let's read together Colossians. We're in chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. Now, it's impossible to understand who the church is without understanding her king. Okay? And so we're going we're gonna to read here about the king who reigns and rules over us, the church. Verse 13, Colossians 1. For he, that being Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and in the earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. 
and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Our king, our savior, our triumphant, everlasting advocate is King Jesus, and we, the church, belong to him. Our identity is in him and through him. We are defined by the one that saved us and thus sanctified and set us apart. We're his church. Now, if this is your church, if you attend Love City, uh, this is not the first and it's not going to be the last time you're going to hear this, but let me ask you a couple questions. Love City, who is the church? We are. We are. That's absolutely right. And who does this church belong to? Jesus. Jesus. When it comes to the church, what we believe about the church, these are two bedrock truths that weave themselves into much of what we talk about. And I will ask that question until the Lord tells me to quit because it's very, very important that we understand that. We can't get it twisted and think the place we meet or the time we meet, the, the, the few hours that we're together when we gather during the week, we can't think that that's church. Church is God's people bought with his blood, Okay. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says this, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So any person who is a Christian is part of the universal body of Christ. And so the biggest, widest definition of the church is this. The church is all Christians everywhere throughout time. Anybody who has ever put faith in the finished work of Christ for their salvation, they are a part of the church. Whether they want to be or not. <laughs> right? Now, that's, that's the universal church. The church also has local expressions or smaller bodies within that larger body like Love City. Okay? So the question that then arises is what does it take to be a local church? Uh, is it simply the gathering of any number of Christians, right? Because some people say where two or more are gathered, he is there, that's church. The problem is they don't understand that that really, the context of that scripture is talking about church discipline. Where two or more are gathered, that's when we can hammer you about your sin. Ooh, that was fun, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> can a few people get together and pray over a meal and eat it or, and maybe even sing some songs and that be church? What does it take? Uh, since the Protestant Reformation, there have been many attempts at defining and spelling out the marks of a true church. Some people don't like there to be any qualifications at all. They think that's too restrictive. Some people, I believe, have too many qualifications. Uh, we affirm the three most widely agreed upon marks of a true local church. And I'm not sure if the audio from um, our series on the church is available online. I, it will be at some point in the future. We covered this a lot, and I'm going to say it again at the risk of it seeming too rep repetitive. We strongly affirm these three marks of the true church, okay? So there's three. It's gospel proclamation, proper preaching of the true gospel, proper administration of the ordinances, so we're talking baptism and communion, and uh, the third is church discipline. So uh, gospel proclamation, why do we think that has anything to do with whether or not a church is actually a church that belongs to Jesus? Uh, if we look at Romans 1.16, many of you could quote this, and I'm glad about it. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation of those who believe. And so the power is in the gospel message. Okay, and so let me stop for a second and explain what I mean when I say gospel, because that word gets thrown around a lot. 
Um, when I say gospel, I mean the good news. That's what gospel means. And the good news is about Jesus. But you can't, the good news doesn't make a whole lot of sense without the bad news first. So the deal is that God made us. He made everything perfect, but man chose to sin and rebel. Since that time, things have not been perfect. Since that time, every man, every woman has been born into sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. And what is required to be in relationship with the God that made us is perfection and holiness. The scriptures say to be perfect as he is perfect. Now, most of you sitting in here, you know the good news. You know the second half of this. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. And if what I just said to you is what is required for relationship with the God that made you is perfection, does that put you in a good spot or a bad spot? Puts me in terrible condition, right? Because I'm in no way perfect. Let there be no confusion and I'll go on the record and say, <laughs> I am not perfect in any way. And if you came up today and you wanted to convince me you were perfect, I'd be very concerned for you. None of us is perfect. And so the, the temptation then, and this is what oftentimes is done with this, is to then, well, that means there must be group justification. Nobody's perfect, so that means everybody's okay. Wrong. Nobody's perfect. That means everybody's in trouble. That means everybody is in desperate need of the good news, and here it is. Though we are separated from God by sin, God made a way by sending Jesus to be born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived but couldn't. He lived a perfect life, and then he died the death that all of us should have died, paying the price we could have never paid. His precious blood, his perfect blood was spilt on our behalf. He died on a cross for our sins in our place. He didn't stay dead, though. An important aspect of the gospel is the fact that everything he said was validated when three days later he rose from the grave. He didn't stay dead. Many witnesses saw this. And we worship a risen Christ. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That's what we mean when we say it. And so that message must be preached for a church to really belong to Jesus. It is our great jewel. It is our great hope. And we want our lives and everything we do as a ministry to be centered around that gospel message. That is what we have to offer the world. That is what we're living out. That is what we're living in light of, the beautiful gospel. And I, I can't hear it enough. I'm not sure, I hope that none of you are tired of hearing that good news because every week I am, I am drastically aware of my need for that good news and that gospel message. Like, I, I've not been perfect in my life. I haven't been perfect this week and not today. In thought, word, and deed, I'm so prone to stumble, but that is why grace is amazing. And that is why the fact that Jesus would take those sins, take my failings, take my doubt, take my unbelief, take everything, all the garbage that I have, and he would exchange, he lets me bring that to him and say, okay, son, you give me all your bad stuff, all, your, all the nastiness and wickedness, all those just ridiculous thoughts that somehow cross your mind. You, you give me all of that, and I'm going to trade you. You give me your sin and your failings, I'm going to give you my righteousness and joy, and peace, and purpose. It's beautiful. It's good news. It's really good news. And I'm thankful about it. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get old singing about it. I'm singing about it. I'm living it out every day. I'm trying to live in light of the fact that I'm saved by grace. I could never, ever have worked off my debt. You understand that? I mean, some of us are, are a little bit, we're a little bit, we're a little bit delusional about this. We, we think that well, I haven't been that bad, and I probably on my own could, could earn my way in, man. It's, it has nothing to do with that, and it's not possible. We have to put trust and faith in the finished work of Christ. He had to do the work, and all he asks of us, 
Nothing else in life is like this. All he asks is that we believe it, that he did all the work, and live in light of it. He could have done it. He could have said, listen, I'll, I'll get you off the hook, but you're going you're gonna to have to work really hard the rest of your life to, to make it up to me. But he did. Trust me. That's what he wants. It's, it's amazing. I'm thankful to Jesus today. So gospel proclamation is one mark of a true church. Uh, the proper administration of the ordinances, those are sometimes called sacraments. Uh, we don't use that word because it, it denotes a little bit and kind of links that sacrament. It links these things to salvation, and we don't believe that baptism or communion are required for salvation. However, we do believe they're instituted by Christ and are helpful to us and for us. Uh, baptism is affirmed by the fact that Jesus himself was baptized. I could stop there. If Jesus did it, I'm in, right? <laughs> if he said it, I'm doing it. And uh, I'm with him. So, however, it's also affirmed in places like Romans 6 and, and many other places. Uh, communion. Again, instituted, commanded by Christ himself. I could stop there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 describes the command to and the importance of taking communion together. We do that at the end of every one of our services. It's the way we respond to what Jesus has done in our hearts through the preaching of the word. Uh, so, proper administration of ordinances. That's the, the second mark of a church. The third is church discipline, everybody's favorite. 1 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 13 are just two of many texts that tell us that sometimes church leadership must lovingly discipline those who have strayed into sin. And so here's what that looks like, because that can be confusing. Nobody likes the word discipline, especially when you're an adult in America. You figure, I get to 18, bump what anybody says, I'm my own person, I can do what I want, nobody's going to tell me what to do, or question uh, my autonomy or self-authority in any way. Um, but that's a foolish attitude. Love you. Um, scripture said that. I didn't come up with it on my own. So here's the thing. Like um, the, the example in 1 Corinthians 5, there's, there's a guy sinning sexually just kind of boisterously and not even trying to hide it, which I don't know how to think about that. But the bottom line is nobody's doing anything about it. As a matter of fact, the Corinthians are kind of holding that up like, look how gracious we are. This guy's sinning, and we're just accepting him, and it's really cool. Um, and Paul writes them to say, no, you're being ignorant and sinful. Somebody there needs to grow a spine and deal with that. And if this guy won't repent, if this guy won't stop what he's doing and uh, obey what Jesus has laid out, if he will not stop this sin, uh, then you're going to have to ask him to leave the fellowship. And he, and he says, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right, so what we're, what we're not saying is we're, we're running around with a magnifying glass trying to find a sin so that we can give you the old, you know, right foot of fellowship out the door. Uh, there's a long process in between you initially confessing sin or it coming out somehow that you're in sin and getting to the point where somebody would have to ask you to leave. Uh, we're going to work really hard in between there to restore you, to love you, to pour grace on you, to appeal to you, to see that the reason why we want you to stop whatever that sin is, is because if Jesus asks you not to do something, it's for your good, always. And if he asks you to do something, it's for your good. God is a perfect, loving Father. And so sometimes we feel like when, when something is considered sin, we're, we're told not to do that through, through the scriptures, that we're being restricted from some type of fun and, and it's really not the case. Sometimes sin can seem fun for a season, but it's a counterfeit, and it's a liar, and it never really delivers what it promises. So uh, that is what the Bible means and what we believe when it comes to church discipline. So uh, 
there is much confusion today surrounding the subject of the church. Uh, many people do believe it's a building where Christians meet. Uh, this leads to the tragedy of Christians going to church instead of being the church. And again, you may seem, think that's a trivial distinction, but it's really, really important. Uh, this mentality also leads to a duality of lifestyle that is not fruitful for the Christian, nor is it a good witness to the unbeliever. When you go to church, oftentimes you put on your best clothes and behavior for that couple of hours a week, and then you go out from there and you blend back in with the unbelievers around you with little distinction from them in love, language, or lifestyle. When you are the church, in contrast, it's not a couple of hour a week gig. There's no division between your spiritual and the rest of your life. Uh, you are the church 24-7. It's woven inextricably into the fabric of your very identity. It can't be pulled apart from who you are. And it's not a mask you put on and take off. Being the church is what we are called to, and it causes us to avoid the criticism of being hypocrites that we sometimes live up to. If we understand that we are called to be on mission as the church all the time, we are less prone to be uh, caught in activities or for things to come out of our mouth that would cause us to essentially stand against what the scriptures say that we should, to seem that we're opposing what it is God calls us to and, and teaches us. Um, and again, this is, this is not to say that we're going to be perfect because we won't. We will still be in desperate need of grace all the time. Uh, however, the process of sanctification by God's Holy Spirit, I just want to be doing a little bit better tomorrow than I am today. I want to be thinking a little more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today. I want to speak more like him, and I want more of my thoughts to be like his. And if we're doing that, if we're running the race, moving forward, uh, that we're, we're in partnership with God in the process of us becoming more like him. We're in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's exciting to me, and it also really makes it hard for Christianity to be boring. I don't understand where people get this idea, because it doesn't matter how many years I live, I will not get to perfection, and so there is always, I'm not going to plateau, right? There's like, there's people that are just, the, the overachievers, like they just keep jumping from hobby to hobby because they keep mastering everything because they're so good. That's probably all of you, right? You're just like so good at everything that life gets boring. Here's the thing, um, you're not going to exhaust this pursuit of becoming like Christ, he is deeper and wider than we could ever go. We can plumb down to the depths of his grace and his love and his mercy. These scriptures, you'll never exhaust the beauty and wisdom found within them, the encouragement that comes up from them. And that's exciting. I'm glad to know I'm not going to exhaust this. I'm not going to beat Christianity, you know, like Super Mario Brothers. I'm not going to get to the end. I killed Koopa. Yes. It's not going to happen. I get to, I get to be in process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ until I'm at his feet. I'm glad about it. You could take the other side of that. You could see that as like, oh, I'm never going to make it and, and be discouraged by it. But I ju that just means I'm, I'm always going to have to lean on his spirit and his anointing. I'm never going to get to the point where I've got, it, I've got it so figured out that I just don't need him. Right? And that's good. That's good. Because I want to I want to be plugged into him and pushing towards him. and I, It's good to be in need of God's presence and spirit. Right? Amen. 
uh, we're going to deal with some specific misconceptions and mistruths about the church, and then we're going to contrast them with the truth about her. And uh, some of you might be wondering why I've referred to the church as her um, several times already, and it's because five times in the book of Revelation and several other times throughout the New Testament, um, and really through the scriptures as a whole, we as the church are referred to as the bride of Christ. And so it's, it's kind of like Jacob of old um, paying the amazing price of 14 years of his life laboring to have the bride that he desired in Rachel. Uh, King Jesus paid the ultimate price, trading his perfect, sinless life for our wretched, broken ones. He allowed his blood to be shed so that he could purchase us free and clear from our old taskmasters, Satan, sin, and death, and so he could have us as his own. You may not be, you may not be real familiar with the story of Jacob and Rachel. Um, I, f- I feel compelled by God's Spirit to just stop and, and make a point here. It's a little bit off of this, but uh, if, <laughs> if you like romance, you should read this story. What, what Jacob did is he, uh, he, he fell for Rachel, man. And so what he did is he agreed to go and work seven years for her, uh, for her father, so that he could have her as his bride. And he works those seven years, and her dad tricks him and kind of slides uh, her older sister in, in front of Rachel the night that they're supposed to be wed, and, you know, it's dark, and he doesn't notice, and uh, it says uh, Leah had weak eyes. I'm not totally sure what that means. Um, the connotation you get is that she wasn't very good looking, and Rachel was, and uh, instead of getting bummed out and quitting on life, I mean, that was seven years, right, that he worked, and he could definitely feel a bit jaded about that. Um, he agrees to work seven more so he can have his girl. So there's just, I want to make a couple points about that. Like, that's real romance right there. Like, if you, if you dig romance novels, like, read that and, and realize, like, here's, I'm going to speak to you ladies for a second. If you're looking for a guy, you, you want a guy that would be willing to do that for you. And here's the reality. Like, some, some guys out here, they wouldn't work 14 days for you, much less 14 years. And um, to you guys, I, I want you to see Jacob's example um, and realize that if you believe it's God's will for you to marry somebody at some point, um, the time to start working at, and asking God to help you become good husband material is not when you meet the girl, but start now. Like, put down the video game controller and do something. Um, work, man. Work and, and learn something. Hang out with people that have gone farther than you. Hang out with men of God that are married. If that's what you desire, like, we, we have a problem in our culture, uh, especially uh, with men, of just them, them perpetually wanting to stay boys. And um, if you want to marry a girl at some point, you, you really need to be a man. And you need to be a guy that's got something to offer, okay? And I'm not saying this to, to beat on you. I'm really trying to encourage you because for, think about 14 years. 14 years of this guy's life, he worked. And I'm not, he wasn't, there's nothing wrong with being a telemarketer, but that's not the kind of work he was doing. Like, this was hard, agricultural, working with his hands. That's how much he wanted that girl. He was willing to sacrifice a lot. And you know what? Ladies, um, that whole time, he regarded Rachel's purity as something to be protected. 14 years, he knew he wanted that girl, he wanted to marry that girl, and kept his hands off of her. Again, 14 days, a challenge for some of you. 
Um, and that's not to knock you, but let's look to Jacob's example and ask God to help us to follow after that as men. Okay? All right. Um, in light of all that we've said so far, let's look at some things that the church is and the church isn't. Okay? Uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, the church is not a business. And you'll hear some people say that, that the church is a business. Um, and here's the thing. I understand full well that many of the tasks financially and administratively uh, for a church are very similar and even sometimes identical to those of a business. I also understand that there are many principles about many things that are helpful to both churches and businesses. Uh, however, the mission of most businesses is to attract and appease customers. The mission of the church is to serve and worship our king. So you instantly you see the contrast there. And if we make how we do what we do all about attracting people and doing things to make them happy, then the unfortunate result is a collision and a conflict between what makes people happy and what makes Jesus happy. And here's the thing. As a pastor and a leader appointed by God to shepherd this flock, I promise you, if it comes down to making you happy or making Jesus happy, I'm always going with him. You may not like that, but you should. Because if you got off, if you got off track, if you got feeling entitled, if you got ungrateful or offended, and it came down to I could either obey, love, and point you to Jesus or just kind of appease you and make you happy, you should be really glad that I'd be willing to have you mad at me to stick with Jesus and his word. And I'll do that. I promise. So you can be glad or happy or sad or mad about that. Either way, it, it is what it is. Um, the problem is, I think, that we forget the power is in the gospel. It's not in our gimmicks and schemes. Uh, it is really not hard to get a big group of people to show up to the same place every week to be catered to. Uh, anyone can do that. Like, hey, come over here. We'll do everything you want. Just tell us. I want to go there. <laughs> yeah. It's like Disneyland. Um, however, it takes the unadulterated power of King Jesus and his gospel to get people to live every minute of their lives in service to Christ and other people. See, I'm not, we're not looking to gather a group of people together and call it a church that we just figure out what everybody's felt needs are or what they think they need or what's going to make them happy and try to meet all those so we can get them to keep coming back. We're calling people to come gather together and lay down their life for each other and to lay down their life for others and to serve Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And that's what we're after. The church is not peddling goods and services for profit. We are the people of God, bought with blood and sent forth on mission to love God, love people, and make disciples. There are things about what we do that will, in some ways, look like what a business does, of course. And there's things we can learn from good businesses. However, to simply say that the church is just a business, it's, it's just about, and there, there are many places that have this mentality, that it's all about figuring out what the customer wants and giving it to them, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to keep endeavoring to understand what it is Jesus wants and do that. You happy about that or sad about that? 
Do you wish we'd just meet all your needs or do you want us to pursue every single day to figure out more and more how we can serve Jesus and love other people? That's what I want to do. That's, that's what we're going to do as a church, okay? And so if, there's, if there becomes a conflict with what we want or what would appease us and what is the best for fulfilling that mission, our own personal desires and preferences are always going to lose. We're going to keep pushing forward to do what it is God's called us to do. What he's called the church in general to do and this church specifically, okay? Um, so the church is not a business. The church is not a club, um, and when I say this, I don't mean like uh, alcohol and neon lights and like booty jams type of club. However, uh, amazingly, there are people that have tried to gear the aesthetic of their church towards something that looks like that because they're under the impression those two things can be blended together. I'm not really sure how, but, you know, glory to God, right? Contextualization. Um, I don't know. Anyways, that's not, re- <laughs> that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, and I see all of you are so confused because none of you have ever been to a place like that, the whole alcohol, neon lights, and, and booty jam stuff, right? You're just like, I'm so confused. What's he talking about? You're a bunch of liars, okay? You're a bunch of liars. All right. Um, <laughs> amen. God's working on us, right? Sanctification and all that. Yay! Really what I mean is a, um, a place where people, you know, like people's main point in gathering together is, is social in nature, more like a country club, and there are some times when when church can become that, the focus becomes about the social aspect of it. And we want people, that's why we have the, the meal beforehand. We want people to come together in fellowship. But all of that should also be pointing towards Christ. And, and we should be pointing to Christ in each other's lives and talking about our testimony, praying for each other. It's not just about what sometimes people getting together can become, you know, comparing, you know, cars and clothes and various other useless measuring sticks that are all going to burn like kindling anyways. Right, and that's sometimes you, there's certain contexts where church can, be, can become that. We get together, and it's a, it's a big um, kind of social contest using some definition of success that is found nowhere in the scriptures. Like success, for me, you can you can define it however you want. Success for me in my life is knowing I did what God made me to do. Period. Like if I can even come somewhere close to that, I'm going to be really thrilled. Um, you know. Whether my boat that I don't have is two foot longer or shorter than yours, I don't care, right? Um, I, I don't care what name is on the tag on my clothes. Um, though, as most of you know, I'm pretty much a fashion aficionado, so um, it's a pretty big deal for me. Um, listen, man, some, some of you are into fashion, and, and if, if that's you, then it's very possible that God uses that for you to be an influence and a, and a gospel voice into a certain group of people's lives, and so I'm not knocking that at all, but um, that should not be what defines us or identifies us, man. Our identity should be grounded, rooted, and flowing from Christ and who he is, okay? Um, The church is not an organization that we belong to because it improves our image or reputation in the community. Uh, It's a group of people that we commit to lay our lives down with and for. Let me say that again. It's a group of people that we commit to lay our lives down with and for. I come here and I gather with you because I'm willing to lay my life down with you for the completing of the mission. And I'm willing to lay my life down for you. And I don't just mean everyone taking bullets for each other because then we're all dead. If, If it came down to that, yes. But more I'm talking about, I'm not saying that we'd all just be willing to die for each other. We should be willing to to live for each other. That means 
if it costs me inconvenience or time to be a blessing to you, to help you in your time of need, I should be willing to do that. And if you're willing to do that for me, then it, it preaches the gospel when people come together in community like that, when people take care of each other and love each other, when they lay themselves down for the betterment of someone else, people see an image and a type of what Christ did for us in laying himself down. And so every opportunity we have to be humble and in unity and to love each other and prefer each other. Every time we get that chance, whether we are aware of it or not, people observe that. And it points to the gospel. That doesn't, that's not enough to preach the gospel. We have to be ready when the opportunity opens up to still preach the good news, to, to articulate what we believe about Jesus, but sometimes living that way, being willing to lay our lives down with and for each other, opens up people's hearts to hear that gospel. It causes curiosity in them. Peter said it this way, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Why is it that you live the way you live? Why is it that you love people? Why is it that you're not about you and getting yours, which is the primary message we hear from our culture? Do whatever it takes to get ahead, even if that means standing on people's heads, right? You're supposed to think of different words when you're preaching to mix it up, and sometimes it just catches you like that. So, oh well, I'm doing a ton of vocabulary drills this week. That's not going to happen again. Um, so we don't, we don't use the church to improve our image, and we don't come to church so that we can go somewhere else and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a part of such and such over there, and, and we think that being associated with Christ somehow makes us look better. Um, we're a part of the church because it's God's people on mission, and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to be a part of that the way Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself. It's all in response to Jesus. That's why it always comes back to him. That's why it always comes back to that beautiful gospel. All of this that we're talking about, none of us is going to live the way that I'm talking about if it's not in response to what Jesus has already done, right? If he hadn't gone first and done this, there's nothing natural in us that wants to sacrifice anything for anybody. Is that right or wrong? I mean, that's right. Human nature is self-preservation. The sin nature in us always is wrestling for do what's good for you. But what God's spirit does is comes and trumps that and smashes it into pieces and causes us to love Christ in response to his love to us and then to love others. And it's beautiful. And it points people to him. The church should look more like a battle-hardened battalion of soldiers than a cushy, smushy group of chit-chats and pleasure seekers. We should look more like a platoon of soldiers ready to do something for Jesus than a bunch of people that just got together to hang out and talk about nothing. And that's, I want to encourage you to be intentional in your fellowship. I, I don't, you know, I think, I think the term hang out is, is, a, is a little bit, uh, and I'm not going to harp on this one like I do other ones, so you don't have to try to, don't say hang out around Pastor Vince, he'll get you. I just don't, I don't know if it's very helpful because it, it kind of has this connotation of like, we'll just get together and whatever, whatever, right? That was cool, right? To, when you say whatever twice together, it sounds hit. Somebody's got to help me with this stuff. Um, <laughs> be intentional. I mean, when you've got time to hang out with somebody, when you've got time to be with other believers, you know, the Bible says that we should be actively thinking. Here's what Romans says. It says you should, be, you should be working to outdo each other in honor. You should be, here's what it says in another place, we should be spurring each other on to love and good works. Oftentimes we just like 
get together and then stare at each other like, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, we should probably eat, right? That's the Christian, that's the Christian answer. Um, man, are you thinking about how to, how to prod your friends along, how to promote those that you're in relationship with to get closer to Jesus? Does that ever cross your mind? That's a part of your mission. You don't know the people you know on accident. God has put you in their life. You should be a catalyst for change for them. They should be challenged by the level of holiness and your hunger for the scriptures, your hunger for the presence of God, and the way that you're laying your life down for others. They should be challenged by that, by your words and your deeds. The Bible says in another place to make the most of our time, man, because the days are evil and, and we need to pay attention and understand that it's beautiful to get together for a barbecue or spend time together in fellowship as God's people. That's wonderful and we want you to do that. Uh, I'm blessed when I see that, that people are getting together and spending time together, but, but I'm always hoping and praying at the same time that, that, that the gospel's being uplifted during that time, that people are pushing each other forward and challenging each other to love Jesus more and to be more like him. That's, that's part of how we love each other. It may, it may seem like a lot of work, but really once that, once that ball gets going, it, uh, it, it really just kind of becomes a part of what we do and it becomes natural and it's not like, it's not awkward. It's, it's empowered by God's spirit and it's beautiful and helpful. So the church is not a business. The church is not a club. It's not just a social gathering. It's a people coming together for a mission. The church is also not perfect. We are imperfect people, redeemed, reconciled, and we're vicariously righteous because of Jesus. What do I mean when I say that? Vicariously means we, we are only righteous because of his righteousness. We, are, we only are righteous because of what he's done. We get to partake in his righteousness by belief in his finished work. And that can be confusing because, like, it, I know I've already said this, but that's, it's the only thing like that. Where else do I not have to earn my own righteousness? Where else do I not have to earn my own place? Why is it that Jesus would do everything I was supposed to do when I didn't do it and then say, just believe that I did that and live in light of it, live in response to it? It's amazing. That's, that's why I can't get over it. That's why people tell me I'm wound up too tight when I start talking about the gospel. That's why it frustrates me when I talk about the gospel and people stare at me like a deer in headlights. What are, something's not connecting. This is the coolest thing ever, man. This is the message we've been trusted with. This is what we're called ambassadors of reconciliation in Corinthians. We are ambassadors of this beautiful message. We who have the light and the life of the gospel in our hearts are ambassadors to those who are dead and in darkness and have no hope. And God trusted us to do this. I, I don't know about you, but I know me. I couldn't have been the best choice, but he still chose to use me. Not only did he save me, not only did he did he rip me up from my own death and destruction and place me in life and hope and joy? But he lets me be a part of doing that for others. Don't get it twisted. I don't do any of the work. We, you don't save people and you can't. But you absolutely, you absolutely can be used by God to be a part of that process. Your life and your example and your words anointed by God's spirit can go into somebody's heart and change their eternal perspective. 
What else are you going to do this week that matters that much? Anything close? Nothing's coming close. Nothing's coming close. We make a lot of mistakes as the church, and sometimes it can seem to be more trouble than it's worth to be an active part of God's plan and purpose through his people. The Bible says that though we are a family, the Bible says though we are a family, and we're bound together by something much stronger than biology, the precious blood of Christ. We are a family, and and the, the ties that bind us are stronger even than familial bloodlines. We are tied together by the eternally flowing blood of Christ. No matter how bad it gets, how hard it is, or how many times we get hurt, we can't abandon our post, give up, or quit on the family of God. Staying a part of the imperfect church gives us beautiful and ample opportunities to give and receive grace, to give and receive forgiveness, to give and receive blessing and help, to give and receive encouragement and prayer. Being a part of the imperfect church is a part of God's plan to grow us up. And he teaches us to lean on his power and anointing. Because we will not be able to love and relate to each other properly or to complete the mission that he has given us without his help. Some of what God is doing by banding us together as his people, by it's beautiful, it's beautiful what Paul lays out for us when he talks about how there's different parts to the body and how it's ridiculous for an eye to say, oh, I don't want to be an eye. I'd rather be a nose. Like, seeing's cool, but smelling looks really fun, right? And, and, and so he's, he's almost making fun of the mentalities that we get sometimes because sometimes we are unhappy with who we are or how God has gifted us, and we, we, like, we're, we're so silly that we'll like, envy somebody else, not being totally grateful, first of all, that we're even in to begin with, that like, we're saved by grace, and like, I don't care if I'm the, the toilet scrubber, right? Like, I'm happy to do whatever it is that God calls me to do, but he's gifted each and, one of, each and every one of us individually and in different ways because what he's causing us to do is need each other. He did that on purpose. <laughs> Some of you might think, like, that's his cruel sense of humor. It's not, uh, though I'm sure he laughs at us from time to time because we can be silly. But you see, you know, Paul's teaching through humor, um, and sometimes you can miss the humor in the Bible because of, like, the span of time and cultural differences, but he's making fun of our attitudes when, like, we're a finger and we want to be a toe. And, and he's, he's, he's kind of playing that up, but what God has done and what he, he's really explaining there and saying that we're different parts of one body that we come together to accomplish one mission is he's letting us know that God has structured us in such a way. He's not giving any of us all that it takes to accomplish this mission. He gives some gifts here and some gifts here. He's put something in you that's not in me and vice versa so that we would come together, love each other, rely on each other, lift each other up. And in that as well, in the unity that we have, in the fact that we're willing to lay down our differences, preferences, and, and kind of our own interests, when we do all that, the gospel again is displayed. The fact that Jesus did that for us, laid down himself for us, considered himself less important than us, that's part of the call. You 
in my mind, you should be more important than me. And in your mind, I should be more important than you. And here's the beauty. It works in marriage as well. If you do that and I do that, everybody's needs get taken care of, everybody's loved, everybody's helped. It's when we retract from that and we get back into that selfish mentality and it's like, well, I've gave and gave and gave and I don't feel like I'm getting anything back. You know, Jesus gave and gave and gave a lot before I gave anything back. He was long-suffering and really tolerant with me. And so I'm going to try to remember that <laughs> before I start pulling back and, and judging anybody else. You with me on that? Amen. If we can do that, we can absolutely rock this region and as far as God sees fit with the gospel of Christ. If we'll make that our priority. The church is not perfect. Because I'm in it and you're in it. <laughs> Amen. Amen.